Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Woo! Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Yep. Then join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group, where only the good people are. Yes, it is the least stressful group you will ever belong in on Facebook. And yeah, it's fun. And we like the people in there. It's true. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. I should say before we jump in, um, I have just moved houses. Well, to a house. To my house. Uh, And I do not have my studio set up and everything echoes. And so the only room I can be in has traffic noises. And that's just kind of as good as I'm going to get. So I apologize for the sound quality for the next episode or two because it's out of my hands. (laughs) It is. It is. Yep. But uh, anyway, hello, Morbid Makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 3. Episode 9, Fragrance, Flowers, and Fat. Indeed. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. And I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official murderino maker, and my pronouns are she and her. Oh yeah, I forgot mine. Mine are also she and her. Yay! So, guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> uh, we're yes. both back. Tell a friend. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, you have stumbled Eminem upon. Eminem will be swing me later. <laughs> you have stumbled upon the area of pop culture where where I grew up intersects. Indeed. What is actually popular, and I therefore know the song. Yeah. Um, Anyway, how's it going? It's it's going. My goodness, there's so much. Uh, so Eldest graduated. I know. I that's made it so wild. That. So wild. And for those of you that kept up with the senior parent song saga, <laughs> I'm declaring a win in that. And by that, uh, I got all of these weirdos to. Uh, Join with me and sing the basically the theme song, friends. Uh, 
So yeah, it was With pretty fun. With some questionable changes, but With you know, we'll let it slide. Right. I'm still declaring it a win. And the students lit up, clapped along, and it was wonderful. Well, that's exactly the goal. That so, was that was my whole goal. Uh, and even though we are just beginning July-ish, I guess we're almost mid-July, yeah. Elvis already has their entire schedule, their dorm assignment. We've gone through, uh, and they did an orientation day. I already know, uh, I already found the local Korean restaurant to order uh, kimchi for them. I've also found, we've got two different pho restaurants that both deliver too. So I have that set in place for when, <laughs> when they need emotional support soup or fermented <laughs> veggie. Um, well done. So yeah, it's it's crazy. They're they're already set. They're set, and uh, they get to move in a week early because they were chosen for the special leader program. They're Which excited, super super great. They're excited. They get to get the lay of the land before you know the the giant ones. They are also very excited because during the orientation they got to have lunch in the um, in the lunch area, and they literally have cold brew on tap. Hell like, yes, they do. And where was that when I was in college? Right? So they're super excited about that. Jumanji update. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm basically no longer dealing with, knock on wood, with surprise Jumanjis. Um, I do have a very weakened immune system right now. It is pretty much a long-haul COVID-triggered Lyme thing. Uh. Uh, right now, I actually am on antibiotics. For strep, sinus infection, ear infection. I did the whole Flonase and eardrops before I left. Oh, man. So it sucks, but now I just deal with the constant fatigue and occasional the nausea thing. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and achy joints. That's like the other one that's pretty ongoing. But meh. And then, let's see. I reached my 365 days straight of learning a Francais. Ooh. <laughs> so I'm feeling very... Um, accomplished in that, I have gone way down a uh, rabbit hole on Appalachian Forager TikTok to the point where I literally downloaded an app to watch extended Appalachian Forager free TV shows. I, I don't know. It was when. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. This, this is me in the middle of the night when I can't sleep. Uh, and no judgment here. In cat news. Ron Swanson, all about the tummy pets for me now. Oh, yay. Just, yeah. So that's pretty much, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much catching every, everything up. Uh, health, kids. I mean, the other offspring is hanging with friends right now. They're at a birthday party at like a giant water park. Um, as long as it's not action park. Right, right. Oh, somebody mentioned Action Park in a TikTok, and I was like, I wouldn't say that, like, because they're like, oh, but we've got Action Park, and I'm like, that's not a plus. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. kind of a plus. <laughs> kind of a plus. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the update here. Um, trying to think of anything else that I was like, oh, I got to remember that. Um, and I can't. All right. That's about it. How are you? <laughs> Oh, well, I moved into my beautiful Victorian mansion. It is beautiful. It is very beautiful. And I must say that 
the um, learning curve is steep with mm. regards to home ownership. And the very first night, um, or I guess the very first morning waking up here, I called my first emergency plumber. Oh, fun. Eh, it was fine. Um, it ended up not being a worst case scenario thing. That's but, always good. Yeah, thank goodness. And it was someone who had been here before. They were oh. like, oh yeah, my tag's down there. I actually already know. <laughs> oh, there you go. I mean, there that's you, go. you can't ask for better with that. I gotta yeah. imagine the, the learning curve is even steeper when you're going to uh, into a Victorian home versus like new construction. Or... Yeah, I, I think that the combination of very large and very old is an interesting combination. I mean, I love this house. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. But there is never not going to be something that needs doing. You know? Yeah. I mean? um, and that's fine. That's kind of what I signed up for. So, right. Um, it's a project. Yeah. Yeah. But it is sort of... I don't know. It's weird um, moving from a teeny tiny apartment in Brooklyn to a space that echoes and I don't have I don't even have a couch I mean I have <laughs> Victorian couches but right. those truly do not count right like, there's a reason my beautiful green velvet Victorian couch is beautiful green velvet and original it's because it's uncomfortable unsittable yes it's beautiful though yeah um, I can imagine those culture shock and ooh sounds any spookiness going on have you met any of your internal neighbors i have in woo um but my first haunting experience turned out to be my own mom <laughs> <laughs> i so, can relate to that <laughs> yeah so my mom helped in the whole moving process and we came up to the house in advance of the movers to get some things done mm -hmm. um, before Jeremy and the cats were going to be here. And this house is 5,000 square feet. Yes. And my mom and I consistently occupied the same three square feet <laughs> the entire time. Um, and you're both very petite little people, so it's not like... <laughs> mom's regular adult size right but she yeah i mean she's but, regular adult size but she's you know she's midwestern petite <laughs> okay <laughs> um, uh, yeah I, I think she's pretty standard issue uh generally speaking um she's tall not that you would know but. i was gonna say i don't i don't have a height Thing well, other than photos. I, well, I mean, she's tall compared to me. She's 5'7". Yeah, that's... And um, normal Midwestern mom sized. So um, so she is, is not mini in the way that I am. But even so, we are very clearly related if you see our faces. <laughs> um, so anyway, that is entirely unrelated. So the house is... It doesn't, 
it has one million windows mm-hmm. and two curtains. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Yep. And the main bathroom doesn't have doors. What? I, well, I guess it technically has one, and it's one of those stupid trendy barn door things. Oh, like a, um, okay. But it's, it's missing just a door. There's just, you hit the top of the main staircase, and there's a, an open doorway. And that open doorway, you wouldn't know from looking at it, because there's a giant window there. Um, but that open doorway is the main bathroom, hmm. which we have nicknamed the performance bathroom. <laughs> um, and, I mean, frankly, it's me, Jeremy, and the cats. So for the vast majority of the time, it does not matter that that right. bathroom does not have a door. I mean, it's a situation that will be remedied, but it doesn't really matter that much. Um but there is a second bathroom on the second floor that came equipped with curtains and the door shuts. Huh. And okay. I had not been by myself in a good week. And I'm generally, or I have historically been alone about 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And so I had locked myself in the bathroom on the second floor to just be by myself. <laughs> so I was sitting in this bathroom, listening to podcasts, being by myself. Yes. And so it's dark. It's probably I don't know, 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, but my mom and I both keep vampire hours so (laughs) it doesn't we were definitely both still up and Mm. knocking around uh the manse (laughs) the manse the manse um that that is what i'm electing to call it right now since it doesn't yet have a name um but i finished my podcast and went to open the door (laughs) and the door at the same time was being opened. <laughs> so the light was on in mm-hmm. the bathroom, but it was completely dark in the adjoining room. And so this hand reaches out of the darkness and I horror movie screamed. <laughs> Like, like so loud that I was sure that my neighbors heard me. Oh, no. Horror movie screen. Because I had been listening to a murder podcast. Of course. And I hear in response this wheezing laughter. <laughs> and so what had happened I love is your mom. <laughs> my mom <laughs> didn't know that I was hiding in that bathroom because the house is gigantic and there are many places that I could have been. Mm -hmm. So she had been in there earlier, I guess, 
and had thought that she left the light on. Oh. But she was sure that she had turned it off, so she was confused about it. And so she was, like, doing the grumble-grumble march to go turn mm-hmm. off the damn light that she was sure she turned off. And so she didn't know I was there. <laughs> and I for sure did not know she was there. And so I was positive she was a ghost because I couldn't see anything but the right. hand in the pitched black. And she encountered me. who And I look like I fell out of a horror movie <laughs> at night. And we stood in the doorway, just cackling, laughing, <laughs> because both of us were absolutely certain that the other one was a ghost. And my mom also sees mm-hmm. ghosts. So this would have been a totally normal thing, <laughs> except for usually they don't scream and yank <laughs> the door open. <laughs> That is amazing. But it was just such perfect timing because I had my hand on the door. So Mm -hmm. she would have seen my fingers appear around the door at the same time that I saw her hand. (laughs) Yep. And so, of course, after my horror movie scream, and then I realized I um, live in a big Victorian house and no one can hear me scream. That's <laughs> You're uh, like, oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was just... The amount of laughter that happened. And every time that we would stop laughing, we would just look up oh at each other Oh my God, that's like, that's like slumber party laughter where you're so tired that every you're like punch drunk kind of and just like everything is that just super exactly funny. That was exactly it. And then you just can't been, stop with the giggles. Because oh, yeah, yes. we had been moving and we were stressed and we were tired. And oh, we just had tears running down our faces. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was... Really fitting that both of us had our first haunting experience, and it turned out it <laughs> to be the other one. What's each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yep. great. But oh, <laughs> my mom was just so surprised because she had never heard me do that scream. Oh yeah, and like I am. I do horror movie scream when people surprise me. Mm-hmm. But, like, when I was living at home, like, my mom is was always around. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really the I have been alone for 16 hours and suddenly you've tapped me on the shoulder experience. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, my soul nearly left my body. I'm glad it didn't. Yeah. But then, just this week, after I thought that I had gotten most of that out of my system, Mm -hmm. I was listening to a murder podcast while sitting at my kitchen island, broad daylight, late morning. (laughs) And, like, catching up on email. I don't even know. Like, something deeply boring. And all of the sudden... There is, like, light fingernail tapping 
<laughs> on my side door window. No. <laughs> I screamed because what I saw was a tall, skinny man, face totally in shadow by a hat, giant beard, tapping <sighs> my window. It was my father-in-law bringing new raspberries <laughs> picked from his garden. Oh, delightful and yum, but oh. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, that's that's a somewhat jarring experience just because it's not, you haven't lived by them. That's not it. You know what I mean? It's not like people are knocking on your door in Brooklyn real often to give you strawberries <laughs> or raspberries or anything else. I no, the only person who was knocking on my door in Brooklyn was my neighbor Janet to gossip about what was going on in the building. Nice. Yeah, I, I've got to imagine that nighttime has to be incredibly different sound-wise. Yeah, there's there are a lot of sounds. It's true. We have loud nature sounds. Such loud nature. Like, you, you you see it in movies and you're like, oh, that's obnoxious. That doesn't. But no, I mean, it's very like. The birds here are so loud. Yeah. There's a cat bird that's stalking me. Oh, boy. And so everywhere I go, there's this cat bird in the window going. <laughs> like, excuse me. What did I ever do to you? Right. I don't even know you. <laughs> It's like, fuck right off. And it flies into the window about once a week. Just boom. So maybe it's mad because it's that stupid. There's a woman on TikTok that just moved into a house and has like 10 vultures. Oh, I saw that. I think I sent it to you. I was like, at least they're not turkey vultures because those are even more frightening. But they can't figure it out because she talked to the guy that used to own the house and he did not feed them because the general consensus was, I'm guessing that the person that lived there before gave him treats, so they're like, hey, you want Fort to give us treats? Nope. He never, in fact, not only did he not feed them, he never even saw vultures. So. Hmm. Well, I, I can say, on a related note, that I have seen crows in the woods behind my house. Ooh, are you going to try to befriend them? Hell yes, I am. I have not figured out how I'm going to do that yet because I haven't gotten any of their attention at the moment. But there's also a place on the interstate where there is always a murder of crows. Ooh. Always. Every time we go by, there's a murder of crows at the same mile marker. Every day. That's their turf. For absolutely no discernible reason. They aren't doing anything. <laughs> I thought the first time that they were having a funeral. Oh. No. No. <laughs> they were just there. And they have been there every single time. Wow. I've driven by there. And but when I say I have driven, I have not driven my car yet. Um, but every time I have ridden by there, there have just been crows. Beautiful, giant crows. All right. Yeah. Anyway, so that is the current state of my affairs. Nice. Yep. 
I have and missed. I ordered a trampoline. Yay! A I have missed you, and I have missed the podcast. I have missed yeah. all the things. I, I mean, obviously we too. talked, but at the same time, it was not. Yeah, but I not quite seen the same. You, seen you. Yeah. And also, you had graduation at the same time that I had moving. And so life took over for a little while. It did. So it is we just actually <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> but we managed to just keep sending photos. Like, you know. Well, yeah. The donkey and the and the sheep that were besties and just keep walking around together. Listen. There are some things that are just necessary. You know? Yep. So I think before we move on that we would like to take a quick break to thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shops members over on the Patreons. Indeed. And to give a totally normal mm-hmm. and not at all creepy welcome to our newest member, Sarah Bone. Hi, Sarah Bone. You have an awesome... Oh, goodness. Biggie wants to welcome you. You have an awesome name. <laughs> Indeed. You would think that the cats wouldn't all be in the same room that I'm in right now, given that they have a house filled with window seats. Oh, yeah, no. Mine's mine's the same way. Yep. No, they're they're all currently in here, all currently pitching a fit. All currently welcome, Miss Sarah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Biggie would like you to know, Sarah, <laughs> that it's dinner time. <laughs> um, just in case you were wondering, yeah. wherever you are at this moment, <laughs> Mr. Big Stuff says it's dinner time. It's dinner uh, time. Yes. So anyway, you are the best. The best. And we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you, maybe there are some in the woods behind my house. Absolutely. And also, especially so, because she's like practically my neighbor. Which is amazing. And please be friends and go on adventures. <laughs> I was immediate like, go check out this cemetery right here. Because at night it's lit up with solar lights and it's amazing and also kind of weird. I mean... That sounds accurate for all of the things that we love. <laughs> right? Right, right, yeah. right. So welcome. Yes. And thank you all of our Patreon members for hanging hanging on this month here while we life While we had chaos. Yes. <laughs> chaos ensued. It um, did. Yes, it did. So do you want to talk about... The history of things that smell amazing? Absolutely. All right. So today I want to tell you about the history of perfume making and different techniques, which is way more interesting and complicated than I thought it would be and is also like the actual manufacturing of it is has been happening for way longer than I thought so um, would you like to take a guess at 
how old you think the world's oldest perfume factory archaeological site is? Oh, factory? Mm-hmm. Oh. Huh. Let's see. I'm trying to I'm trying to deduct logically because I know that historically <laughs> my my Egyptians also okay. Asia and India is where it started, but it went to Europe later. Also factory. 1890? I mean, that is not terribly far away from like current French perfumes, but the answer for the oldest archaeological site that was clearly um, a factory with large scale production actually goes back to about 4,000 years ago. Uh, which is about wow. 2000 BCE to Bronze Age Cyprus. And this isn't the first civilization or group of people to make perfume, like right. not by a long shot. But Italian archaeologists who unearthed it found the site to be a whopping fourth thousand square meters which is about an acre wow uh, making it pretty clear that the people producing perfume here were doing it on an industrial scale that's and, fascinating yeah and the pieces that they've uncovered um are even like you can see some of them in rome and in other places already because the site has produced a lot of really interesting artifacts already mm -hmm. but it was extremely clear that this was a factory that this was production. Wow. um and you might be wondering why why right? was cyprus of four thousand years ago manufacturing perfume and when i say manufacturing i mean they were hand making perfume right but right an acre of them <laughs> but on a bulk <laughs> level i mean that's yeah um so there's one very good reason why cyprus and specifically bronze age cyprus would have been one of the earlier large-scale production sites and that one word is aphrodite oh. um specifically the Temple of Aphrodite, because Cyprus is the home of Aphrodite and where she walked out of the shell and all of that in lore. And so her temple is there and one of the most common offerings at the temple would have been perfume. Makes sense. And so, like, it could have been in many different forms, um, sometimes incense, but sometimes True. containers of perfume would be left there. And 
it suddenly makes a lot of sense why Cyprus. It it does, and historically, I forget that historically the term perfume it means encompasses more than just what you spritz upon your body. It's you know. Yeah, and I'm gonna talk about the um, the different processes that create different names of things. Um, so in a broader history, like certainly well before this archaeological site of a factory in Cyprus, um, there was there were scent makers and producers. <laughs> and they have a long and storied history, probably as long as people have, I would argue, probably as long as people have had royalty or the idea of elevated families or religion. Yep. So a long ass time. Um, and the women are frequently very conspicuously absent from history books. The first recorded chemist found in historical documents was a Mesopotamian woman named Taputi. Tipout. Yep. <laughs> yep. And yep. I expect that I'm not going to go into... Um, I didn't go into her. I was just going to mention her because, yep. you know, it's it's yeah. me and <laughs> I'm like, badass woman, yes! It's true. Um, so, recorded on a cuneiform tablet that was dated to 12, or 1200 BCE. Biggie. Calm yourself. <laughs> my spouse is feeding them dinner. I don't know why. He's got to be in my business. Anyway, um, recorded on a cuneiform tablet dated to 1200 BCE to... Biggie just doesn't want to hear it. Um, Tapudi was a powerful part of Babylonian Mesopotamia's government religious and royalty practices and would lay the groundwork for scent extraction techniques as we know them. Um, she... Go to Pootie. Exactly. Um, and as of now, she is the first recorded or chemist on record in the world. Which, which is amazing. Is kind of awesome. It doesn't mean she was the first because she wasn't, but <laughs> she was real early. Don't be trying to steal her thunder. <laughs> well, I'm just saying she I didn't in invent. Although she did, she recorded the techniques mm -hmm. that she was um, creating, and she probably is the first person to use solvents in extracting but I'll get into that in a second. Um, so in another branch of scent history, the um, Indus, uh, Indus civilization in modern day India also has deep roots in scent. And yes. an example of a scent distillation tool from that area has been carbon dated to 3000 BCE. Wow. 3,000 BCE. Holy shit, man. 
That's amazing. Also, it, if you go from the religious standpoint, a lot of their religions involve, like, incorporate incense and things of that nature, so. Yep. Uh, All you gotta do is sort of glance over at the Bible Mm -hmm. and see your frankincense and myrrh and... Which smells so good. It's true, I have some. Upstairs. (laughs) I was telling... I was telling my offspring while I was doing this, I was like, you know, it reminds me when I was little, like, the, the one thing I liked about going to church was the incense. And I'm like, ooh, I should look up a Catholic supply store and see if I can get some of their incense. <laughs> I mean, you really can just right? buy I was like, resin. Yeah. And I used to have, yeah, I used to have the, some charcoal. Yep. I used to do that mm-hmm. um, once upon a time. Anyway, um, so a lot of times in different civilizations, scent was sort of reserved for royalty or harems or religious practice um, and especially certain precious scents. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wouldn't have been available to ordinary people simply because, well, they might not have been allowed to have mm-hmm. them or the time and effort involved in producing them would have made them out of reach for right. everyday people. And that isn't true for all perfumes because perfumes have been made for a very long time out of a lot of things but one of the most interesting to me perfume making techniques is called enfleurage yes yes um (laughs) or perhaps your french is better equipped that that was good that was good um so at its most basic Enfleurage is a technique wherein unscented fats that are solid at room temperature are spread across a piece of glass called um, a chassis and fresh flowers then placed on top of that fat which absorbs the scent molecules and then those flowers are swapped out at intervals until the desired concentration of scent within the fat is achieved. And it's a very old process, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of, a lot of work. And also, historically, makers of uh, this particular variety would have often owned their own flower fields. And, like, they would have needed to have access to a seriously large quantity of, of flowers or other botanicals in order to have enough material to swap out the um, sp- spent organic material and replace mm-hmm. it with fresh flowers. Because, well, a lot of people might not think about flowers as something that can go off. Um, 
they very much like anything that is it's natural matter that is natural matter but also that is natural matter that involves fat yeah is like if you've ever had a peanut that <laughs> had gone rancid yeah um, or olive oil like there mm-hmm. are so many different types of fats that very easily tiptoe over that line. Avocados. So, oh gosh, yes. Uh, really, Biggie? All right. Um, so, what cat? Sorry. Um, so, to sort of have an idea about how labor-intensive this process is, sometimes more delicate flowers might need to be swapped out every couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it was days, sometimes it was months. Like, it very much depended on the individual flower. But... It's a very, very labor-intense process. And I first became aware of this process because I own two perfumes that were created using the enfleurage technique by artisans. And I was curious about what made them different and why they were like um, they're called a pomade Mm -hmm. um, and like why they were a solid perfume texture and um, the reason is because this technique requires a fat that is solid at room temp and so Historically, the fats that have been used have been animal fats, so often lard or tallow, but non-animal sources such as palm kernel oil are frequently used today as well, and by frequently, I mean, frankly, very few people are doing this technique, but the people who are are often the sort who would rather use palm kernel oil and other related things. I discovered it late april early may on tiktok um and was completely entranced the people that i watched do the process i most of them used coconut oil um coconut oil has its own scent though right um but the reason i was like i'm going to do this next year is because it is the only way that you can get a true lilac. I know, and lilac is one of it's the my um, uh, the, the delicate pomades that I have. Oh, see, mm. so I was like, and I think that's one that has to be like every two to four hours that they have to swap out. Yeah, um, it, but I was like, I'm going to do this thing next year because I have access to lilacs, and it's. My absolute favorite. So I was like, I, and it was funny because I was like, ooh, future topic. And you're like, yeah, it's already down. (laughs) I was like, all right, woo. (laughs) Yeah, I added it as soon as I bought, the first one I bought was Lilac. 
because I love that scent. And um, this, the base of both of the um, Enfleurage pomades that I have, um, one is Jasmine and Ooh, one yep. is Lilac, um, are palm kernel oil. And Jasmine, that's, I was thinking Jasmine would be a good contender for that too. Mm-hmm. Um, based the, on how much it costs oh, to so process much. it, which I will get to, but, um, but yeah, those are two of my, those are two of my favorites. <laughs> so yep. yeah. And they're my favorite too, because of <laughs> course I like the expensive stuff. Right. Um, which reminds me, I need to unearth them. I do not know where they are right now, but the funny thing is they smell terrible. Um, when you open the container and smell them. They don't smell good until they're on your skin and have a chance to breathe. Yeah. And then they smell amazing. Well, but and then they the, don't yeah, last then, very long. Because then the oil sinks into your skin, leaving just the floral. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a whole thing, which I think you go into that, right? Um, Not really. I go into just more of what and why like what is used and why at some point i think a future topic definitely should be scent molecules and how they work because yes 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 um and i did research on it but i don't know enough about it to speak with authority on it um Uh, i can cover the psychological scent thing a little bit um Which is, again, also fascinating. Scent in and of itself is a fascinating thing. Very fascinating. Um, So as for Enfleurage, you can thank 18th century France for this technique, which I think (laughs) is where you got your guess. Um, And this technique is specifically called cold Enfleurage. Mm -hmm. And that's because hot Enfleurage... um, isn't compatible with many of the more delicate flowers. Yeah, I would think not. Yeah. And so that said, hot enfleurage is a similar technique, but it's much, much, much older. It's probably the oldest scent extraction technique that there is. Probably. Yeah, Um, makes sense, yeah. And hot enfleurage is when botanical matter is stirred into fats that have been heated to their liquid state and um but that that has to chemically alter whatever botanical or item you're putting in there and it it does and you have to know what you're doing yeah um but uh so during that process Old botanicals are strained out and removed and replaced by fresh botanicals until the desired saturation of scent is reached. So it is a similar process, just Which, it's a interesting. lot more, um, or I think a lot faster, but also a lot less precise, it would seem. Yeah. Although I'm sure that perfume makers would probably argue with me and win. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I just watched, you know, in my foraging yeah. <laughs> TikTokies, that a woman had reached out to um, a local duck farm, I think, um, 
and said, hey, if you have anything, you know, scraps left over that you generally would, you know, considered waste material, you know, let me know. And the guy dropped off like a 30 pound bag of like duck neck fat and skin. And she used different processes to render the fat. One was a dry process. One was a wet process. And I was like, and as I'm watching it, I'm thinking of, you know, like it, it occurred to me, like, just there's so many different ways to achieve the same thing and the chemical processes that are applied to each one end up with a different end result like yeah melting just something as simple as melting fat how you melt that fat is going to alter how it tastes or is utilized and how and when you cool it right right or how quickly yeah. You cool it. Like, yeah, so it's, it's, um, a lot of those same, like, cooking ideas mm-hmm. do translate to anything you'd make with a fat, like, including right. soaps or, yeah. um, in this case, perfumes. Um, so I was listening to the, um, Dressed History podcast which is um, a, I, I want to say the, um, uh, the Museum of Fashion History or something does this podcast. I've linked to it in the show notes, um, but I cannot remember the um, specifics, but these are um, fashion historians who are hosting this podcast. And they did a short process or a short um, podcast on Enfleurage with a, a company in, I believe, New Mexico that is called Dryland Wilds. And they are specifically doing Enfleurage on site with native plants um, and also invasive species that farmers want to remove they will go in and they will harvest and remove them um and oh, use fun. them to create their perfumes and they have some skincare products i was gonna stuff. say there's there's gotta be a fine line between especially when using that process between a perfume and a balm yeah, and I think there's actually a technical definition, and I th- think I'm going to get to it. Uh, I can't I also, remember if I'm going to get to it. But. At some point, I want to deep dive as to how um, perfume became so closely linked to fashion. I mean, I weirdly enough, that podcast also goes into that um, when they, an earlier episode, talked about the history of um deodorant ah. and fashion Ooh, i'm definitely gonna check it out yeah so it's a really good podcast and i've linked to the specific episode um on on Florage, and the podcast is called dressed the history of fashion awesome and um i've listened to it for quite a while they're very good all right so i have since lost my place okay <laughs> So uh, one thing that that podcast brought up that I hadn't really thought about when 
considering enfleurage as a method is how careful you would need to be about things like mold mm-hmm. because you're dealing with organic matter and moisture contents and like all of that wants to break down and grow mold like yep. it wants to and so you have to be really careful if you're doing cold on fleurage um that you are in a dry climate and also that your system is as airtight as it can be and even then um you have to change out the glass that you're using um right and the tweezers and whatever yeah to make sure that mold doesn't grow and they were talking about that and um watching for that specifically in the podcast episode that I was listening to and then I was thinking Europe would not be ideal (laughs) right maybe like in a cellar (laughs) yeah so yeah um, yeah, it's it's interesting to me so I really like the idea um, that has been sort of historically said of capturing scents is that like making a perfume is capturing the soul of the flower, which I I think is kind of lovely. That is lovely. And to give you a general idea of how long this process takes, not just with the switching out and stuff day to day, but it can take a month, a month and a half to do one batch. Right. And that is swapping out. And all then of you're those you're flowers. fighting, especially with lilacs. You're fighting time hard on that because you get such a short window. Mm-hmm. And you've got to pretty much pluck them off the bush and then use them right away because they don't, it's not like, you know. I mean, even if you cut them and put them in water, they don't, you know, they already lose part of their integrity. Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's way more dramatic than you would think. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'll just talk about a few other methods. Um, There's a lot of science involved in perfume making. I love science. I love science, too. But each of these methods could be its own. Right. um, Yeah. Its own podcast subject. So I'm just going to briefly touch on um, a few other methods for specifically natural products. And if you're wondering about synthetics, I urge you to listen to the podcast that I linked because they talk about um, synthetic scents and in the same way that microplastics are in everything, synthetic scents are too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, avoid it. All right. 
so I am currently looking at um, a website specifically about um, perfumes and shopping and like related to the making of perfumes and okay. it's um, Sylvain Delacorte is I believe the store that this is from mm-hmm but it's it's in London isn't it I think so yep I yep <laughs> yep um, and so they had a good guide of the different kinds of extraction processes that can be used to make a perfume and I am specifically going to talk about the natural materials and just go over them quickly but if you want to read further I have linked that in the show notes as well so um, there are about 1,000 natural raw materials available in uh, for making perfumes which is a lot lower than I would have expected. Yeah. But um, I I think that that's that's interesting. It is um, interesting. Yeah. And so that is sort of a general idea. It's sort of, it's a moving target because new things are discovered, other things disappear. Um, legislation impacts that but Mm, generally speaking that's kind of what you're working with and so one extraction process is something that we're all kind of familiar with whether we know it or not um it's called expression and began around the 19th century and it's basically a um Uh, producing essential oils by hand so like when you're zesting citrus and Mm -hmm. or you know if you have a fancy cocktail and somebody lights an orange peel on fire yeah it's burning the essential oil and so that is uh, expression is the manual removal of or I guess isolation of that essential oil. And then there's also distillation, which is another of the extremely, extremely old, back at the beginning of history, where, uh, you know, nobody knew there was history yet. (laughs) It's back then. Um, And so... The distillation process, it was perfected um, by Arab civilizations in the eight-ish, eight-ish-ith <laughs> century <laughs> and um, is still one of the main techniques. And, like, this is where... All of your uh, old-timey ideas of civilizations making fancy things that you love 
that's this. Um, nice. So, um, thank you, Arab civilizations, for bringing us beautiful, beautiful smells. Yes. All right. So this process. Um, Hi, Jack. <laughs> uh, suddenly there was a kitten on my lap. Um, uses heating and cooling techniques um, to basically separate oil and water. And distillation can do a lot of things involving alcohol or <laughs> whatever, but basically you can either get essential oil from it which is also in um, perfume settings called the essence mm -hmm. or you might get floral water like say rose water um, so that's that um, making rose water is kind of fun I haven't made it but I use it it's yeah so you you're you're essentially catching condensation that comes off the petals mm -hmm. it's kind of fun interesting uh so extraction by a volatile solvent dun, oh. dun, dun, um is basically dissolving things that smell good that can be dissolved in a solvent and then that solvent is evaporated. Uh, so you know how sometimes you spray on perfume and it dries very quickly and then it smells? Mm -hmm. That's because it's an alcohol. That's an alcohol. Yeah. And there's your volatile solvent. So that dries quickly. Yep. So um, there are many different extractors that exist, but that is just one of the examples. And um, uh, extraction by solvent produces something called concentrate. Mm. All right, so you can also extract by CO2 and it's fancy. It's fancy. And generally that's a luxury market thing. Uh, it's very, very precise. It's basically calling in your scientists to extract very, very efficiently and carefully. Um, gotcha. Let's see. There's a technique that I think is hilarious, um, <laughs> just by name, called headspace. Okay. It's a technique. Um, and the point of headspace, which I can now only think of as head cannon, um, because <laughs> The idea is that it reconstitutes the natural scent of the raw material. And so I feel like that raw material, um, like what you smell and what you think is close, 
to that raw material, that would be your head cannon of your head space. <laughs> um, so it it's basically playing with molecules and reproducing them and combining them in a way that uh, reproduces the scent of a space. So, you know, like, sometimes you will smell something and you will be like, oh my gosh, Lake Michigan Beach, South Haven, Mm -hmm. this particular fast food place that we always stopped at. Like, Mm -hmm. it's creating that kind of experience. And... I just am delighted that it's called Headspace. Yeah. Um, So there are many other ways that you can break down different methods, and we could take a deep dive into literally all of them and spend hours talking about them. But I I think Enflourage is the most interesting to me personally because it's the most within reach. Yes. Uh, to me personally. And so I I think it's very cool and I like that multiple varieties of that technique can basically like you can reach all the way through basically the entire history of human civilization and the hand of the first person who decided to heat up something in oil Mm -hmm. right back like i just i really like that idea of of connection through history and how people are still sort of making potions in the old ways absolutely yep and so that is uh where i'll stop Okay, that was wonderful and fascinating. Well, and so I... weird. I, <laughs> I love how bizarre the combinations can get and how you can get as scientific <laughs> or as straightforward manual as you want. Well, if you like bizarre, then strap in. <laughs> I'm ready. Hit me with it. Um. So, scent, it's a, it's a magical thing. Like, in fact, out of all of the senses, it is the only one that bypasses our thalamus and instead smells go straight to the olfactory bulb, which is the mm. brain's smell center. And it's directly connected to the amygdala and oh. the hippocampus. So, that's what they think is the reason for a smell immediately triggering a detailed memory or even an intense emotion in a way that nothing else really can. Hmm. Like, just that slightest whiff of a faint smell can transport you to a time or a place or... Or even the memory of a smell. Right. Right. Just something that, you know, it can trigger. Um, And the why and the how... Behind all of that is a whole other episode that I'm sure we'll get to. Um, But smell has always been, like, a big thing for me. 
I've always had a sensitivity to overly chemically processed spells, so those synthetic ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be why I would save up to buy fancy perfume. Like the only fancy things I really, fancy thing I really owned younger and throughout my life was was perfume. Now I say fancy, but I guess it's kind of lightly because in high school I was known for my Calvin Klein scents. Now. I think Calvin Kine's probably like the target of, you know, of sense. Um, I don't know, not in the '90s though. Um, so I was, I would, I was an eternity girl for the longest. Uh, in fact, people would know if I'd been in a room before then, and I always lost the guess who game because I was like the only person at school that wore eternity. I did hmm. try colors of Benetton for a bit because you know, it was the big thing, but I. Didn't like it as much, and then I launched into CK1. Do you remember CK1? <laughs> oh, I wore CK1. Mm-hmm. I loved it. And then years later, I discovered Gautier's Classique. And I was, before I even smelled it, I was in love with it. Because it comes, the bottle is a gorgeous torso of a woman in a corset. And then that bottle is housed in a giant tin can. Like, <laughs> Um, but that perfume is still pretty much my backup perfume um, because it's not really popular. And for some reason, it just smells good on me. And I just really like the smell of it. On the daily, though, over the last couple of years, I've been enamored with an Etsy shop called The Little Book Eater. And if you're a patron, you've probably heard me gush about them for our holiday gift guide. Yeah. Um, because not only are there themes, like the themes of the perfume oils, amazingly fun. The ingredients that that they use are pure enough that they last long and they don't bother me. Um, so now, if you smell me coming on an average day, I smell like what is called the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and it's apple, white sage, vanilla, amber, cedarwood, and musk. Mm. And it makes me happy. Now, while all of those ingredients sound very lovely, today I'm going to talk about some that... Well, not so much. Uh, I think and, you smell like fall. Uh, kind of fall, but the apple has this crispness about it hmm. that is slightly refreshing. It's really interesting. Um, so Come to here so I can smell you. I will come so you can huff upon my wrist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got a little creepy, sorry. <laughs> So today no, I'm into it. <laughs> uh, I, and then it will swoon properly upon the green velvet couch. Uh, Excellent. Uh, I'll make sure there's a camera. Nice. Uh, so today I'm going to break down just uh, exactly a few of the ingredients uh, that are used to, to make the most expensive perfumes and their knockoffs. Um you mentioned the first perfume maker on record and the female chemist Taputi, which I am excited about because I I felt it was important for her to be properly acknowledged in this episode, and you did a wonderful job at that. So uh, any who's alumnus, s- she deserves to be at the forefront. Yes, uh, I'm going to start out with the most expensive ingredients. So <laughs> when it comes to modern perfumery, uh, the more and I think probably any perfume, the, the more pure and expensive the ingredients, the more expensive the perfume. And I think that just goes for anything. The yeah. more pure a fabric is, the more expensive the garment tends to be. 
the more pure or organic or fresh off the farm ingredients are, the more expensive the food tends to be. The less amount of processing, ironically, uh, <laughs> is more expensive. So especially when you attach like the designer tax that goes along with it. Right. Um, some of the most expensive ones may surprise you a little bit. Uh, first off, we have one of my favorite flowers, which is jasmine. And as I was learning about jasmine, I was like, ooh, the the fat process would be probably a good way. But the real and, and synthetic version of jasmine can be found in more than 80% of all women's perfumes found commercially. The real, that doesn't surprise me. Right? The real stuff, though, is super pricey. It takes approximately... I know. <laughs> 2,000 pounds of jasmine flowers to produce one pound of oil and 8,000 jasmine flowers to yield a quarter ounce of the absolute oil, which is the most precious of the oils because of it's so concentrated. Mm -hmm. Because of it, the price of jasmine oil is super high. Uh, You'll pay $96 for an eighth of an ounce on a reputable site. If you compare, you compare that to say like lavender oil, which is like thirteen dollars for a half ounce. So, in yeah. well, addition, I could say that hmm? the um, the unfloraged jasmine pomade that I have, the jar is 0.5 ounces, and obviously that is largely the fat base, and it was a hundred dollars. Oof. Yeah. yeah. I mean, absolutely beautiful. I think it was a Christmas gift to myself. Like, it was a splurge. Well, and here's the thing with jasmine flowers. So not only just the sheer amount of it that it takes, Mm -hmm. they are one of the most fragile flowers ever, and they must be placed in special baskets to prevent the petals from bruising. And any processing that is done with them has to be done immediately. Um... So, yeah, that would make sense. I mean, even in a, I mean, handmade small batch like that, uh, yeah, they still have the same. And jasmine is also antiseptic and anti-inflammatory, not dissimilar to rose. Um, (laughs) Funny you should say that. Ooh. Because next up, we have the ever-popular Bulgarian rose. And uh, (laughs) like its buddy Jasmine. Rose rose oil is found in most fragrances, but rose production is even more time intensive and therefore even more expensive than jasmine. Is it? Yep. Well, it takes 2000 pounds of jasmine to oil to produce a pound or of jasmine to produce a pound of oil. It takes 10,000 pounds of rose petals to distill 1 pound of the highly coveted rose oil. Fascinating. Right? Uh, surely they're easier to process, though, right? No, no. I mean, I would think they were at least easier to grow in bulk. Yeah, but the... So the Rose Valley in Bulgaria produces 70% of the world's rose oil. Mm-hmm. The picking season in this valley dates back more than 300 years. And it's very short. Uh, mm. Like workers, usually women, only have a few weeks from May to June to pick the flowers. Um, plus, they have to get their job done uh, in the dark 
before sunrise. Oh, because will they ferment? I don't know. Each flower then has to be cut individually. Think of the fucking thorns. Then laid in willow baskets and taken immediately to a distillery. So that would be a sucky job. It would smell phenomenal. But, oh my gosh. Especially before they came up with, like, decent gardener's gloves. Uh, So that is why uh, it costs about... Uh, $237 for an eighth of an ounce of Bulgarian Rose Absolute Essential Oil. Now, Yep, that sounds about right. (laughs) Because of the high price of rose oil, cheating is pretty much rampant. Some rose producers cheat the system by diluting the oil with geranium or palmarosa essential oils, which contain the same chemical as rose oil, so some of the so-called rose oils are up to 90% geranium or palmarosa to 10% rose. Geranium oil actually smells kind of lovely on its own, I think. I uh, so surely that is the most expensive flower, right? Nope. Nope. I was nope. going to say, apparently not. But nope. I bet I know what is. <laughs> what do you think it is? Lilac? Nope. Hmm? Iris. So, coming in first is the iris bulb. Iris is finicky as hell. Which creates an extremely expensive oil called oris. The perfume archivist for Les Centaurs in London, James Craven, has named oris as one of the top three most expensive perfume ingredients in the world. Why? Because it is a huge fucking headache to make. So after the flower blooms, its rhizome, which is called the orus root, must be left in the ground for three years. Then it is unearthed, meticulously hand clean, and dried in the sun for another three years, in which time the Who root this oxidizes, out? increasing the concentration of a violet-scented molecule called irone. Who figured that out? Right? Finally, it is pulverized into orus butter, which is a waxy substance that can then be distilled into a fragrant liquid absolute. So from start mm-hmm. to finish, it takes about seven freaking years and more than a ton of rhizomes to produce a pound of absolute which is worth about $30,000. So it starts out as a freaking root and it ends up more costly than gold. Fuck me, that's a lot. Right? Uh, Next next up on our list, we have oud, which comes from the wood of a wild tropical tree called the agar. Wood seems simple, right? Apparently not. (laughs) Nope. The wood has to become infected with a specific type of mold called (laughs) Philophora parasitica, which causes the wood to produce oud, which is a dark, extremely fragrant resin. And apparently only 2% of the agar trees produce oud, making it incredibly precious. And precious means expensive. Sounds like a Doctor Who villain. Right? Uh, It is. I know. <laughs> I love the Uds. Uh, to its rarity, 
uh, due to its rarity and high demand and the difficulty of harvesting it, oud oil is one of the most expensive oils in the world. And at one point, its value was estimated to be 1.5 times the value of gold, and it is sometimes also referred to as liquid gold. A 2019 Medium article that I found did the math, because I could not. Um, and at that time, they came to the conclusion that $2,000 is the final price you pay per one milliliter of what Arabs called Don al Oud, which literally translates to me the fat of the wood. And I think one milli—it's—it's it's just a one milliliter is an incredibly tiny amount. Oh, oh um, it, I, yes. So it's really small, right? So it has been popular in the Middle East for centuries, and it's enjoying, I guess, a huge boom here now in the West, with more and more brands creating oud fragrances. I'm not sure that I've smelled oud, but from the sounds of it. Uh, I'd really like it. Uh, it sounds pretty delightful. Um, hmm. So the next one on the list may surprise, but it also may not surprise. And that is musk. But it is everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the vast majority of that musk produced and sold in the world is synthetic. To get... Yeah, because it's stable, right? Uh, actually, it's not even that. It's basically because to get real authentic natural musk oh i know what it is you must first kill a male musk deer mm. which just happens to be an endangered animal so natural musk was used exclusively until the late 19th century when ethics started to become more of a factor and people stopped the slaughter of these deers which live in nepal and the region surrounding it right. nepal's had enough issues to contend with um Poachers still kill these deers, harvest their musk pods, which are the glands located in the abdomen near the deer's penis, and then create a grain from the dried out musk pod. But they're assholes, so we don't wear real musk. Uh, and no, that's not the weird part. We're going to get into the weird now. Oh, good. <laughs> the name Ambergris. Sounds fancy and unalarming. Uh -uh. It is neither. Ambergris oil is one of the most valuable and legendary ingredients in perfumery. Prized... Can I guess what it is? <laughs> sure. Is it beaver? Nope. Okay. It's worse. Uh, oh. <laughs> it's prized for not just... it's. So, it, the thing that makes it more, like, mostly prized is because it's, um, its ability is a fixative to enhance a fragrance staying power by anchoring the more volatile ingredients and kind of rounding it out. Oh, okay. Uh, so why is it so expensive? It is a product of ambergris from the French ambergris, meaning gray amber. A waxy substance that comes from the digestive tracts of sperm whales. Huh. It, it can be found on the beach or floating in the water. The oil is used in the perfume to fix other scents, and trappers also use it to make scent lures. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's basically kind of whale poo, but it could also be considered whale vomit. Uh, it's whale vomit poo. <laughs> you know, just... Uh, 
It's Ew. produced in the digestive system of the sperm whales. Um, and it's thought to make it easier for whales to digest, sh- like, shard, like, sharp objects, like squid beef. Who found that? Right, right. So usually the whale vomits the sharp bits up. If not, they travel further down to the gut where they're covered in in ambergris, which is a sticky, gelatinous material which dries to a lump with a resinous texture and then floats on the surface, ending up on beaches and places like South Africa, the East Indies, China, Japan, and New Zealand. And again, I'm like, Jesus, why would you... And here's the thing. When it's first produced, it is useless as a fragrant ingredient and definitely smells like poop. Um, as it ages, yeah. sorry, as fecal, um, <laughs> as, it, as it ages, the smell matures and apparently develops beautifully. And before it can be used in perfumery, it's got to be diluted with alcohol. Oh, good. Chemist Gunther Olaf, Olaf once described uh, ambergris as sorry, ambergris, as humid, earthy, fecal, marine, algoid, tobacco-like, sandalwood-like, sweet, animal, musky, and radiant, which is a lot of conflicting shit in my head. Um, (laughs) Others comment... That kind of hurts my brain. Right. This is where it would get me. Others comment that it smells a bit like wood in old churches or Brazil nuts. Old church wood, you've got. I know exactly what that smells like. Right? Where it's got, it's it's old and it's got like all the incense seeped into it and just that old, ugh. So that's Yeah, I know where, exactly what that smells like. That's where that ropes me in. Uh, it can be sold for up to Why 40- can't we just distill old church wood? Right? Uh, it can be sold for up to 40,000 a kilogram. There's apparently like a little Thai farmer who recently found a giant glob of it that was worth like over $215,000, which is amazing to me because that is life altering money for not just him and his family, but probably his entire village. I mean, that's so it's, it's interesting that 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 oddity could provide an average person who would not have access to that kind of money, that kind of money. Fun note. It is said that both Chanel Number no. Five and Old Spice original formulas once used ambergris. Again, that I think I know about Chanel Number no. Five. Like I don't understand on a lot of these things. I don't on a lot of things in life. I don't understand how somebody looked at it and went, "Hmm, I wonder how that would taste or smell. I wonder if all that would work." Into you know, like I wonder if I, I mean, could make I perfume out of that. It was an accident. It had to have but- been. Uh, so before before I wrap this up, I want to gross you out just a wee bit more. So in comes the funky stuff used in perfumes. Oh, no. Civet musk. Oh, Civets no. may sound familiar as I they are the cat-like is. mammal that poos out cherries that are then used to make the most expensive coffee out there. And they are mostly found in Asia and Africa. It seems their anal secretions are just all around magic because uh, (laughs) specifically from the perineal glands and that space near the booty hole and the dangly bits is the civet musk. Uh, (laughs) The the taint, I guess. Uh, (laughs) 
the musk looks like a yellow wax and smells awful, but allegedly becomes radiant and floral when diluted. Great. Again, who drank that coffee and who huffed that shit? Like, I'm just saying. Somebody was just so desperate. So desperate or there was a big dare going on. Somebody was drunk and teared. I don't know. But all of that, meh. Next up, we have Castorium, which is the beaver musk. Okay. Beavers are adorable, and their caster sacks are from uh, which Castorium comes from. In nature, beavers use the yellowish substance for a more practical purpose, which is to mark their territory. In sense, Castorium, which is derived from dried caster sacks that are aged for two years, two or more years to, air quote, mellow, (laughs) <laughs> Who thought of that? I it just, don't know. I have so many questions. It is used to denote the intoxicating smell of leather. Now that and oud can be found in Tom Ford's oud wood perfume or cologne, rather, a fifty milliliter, which is only one point six nine ounces, will run you two hundred and eighty five dollars. No, <laughs> right. Last, but certainly not least, we have hyracium, which is the hardened fecal matter of a small rodent, which is kind of like a badger. Uh, fuck? Yeah, the rodent is the hyrax, and its quirk is pooping in the same place, like a cave, for generations. Over time, all that poo in the same place becomes petrified turning into brittle brown stones. People sometimes call them Africa stone. So from there, <laughs> Right? From there, the... It puts guano to shame. Hyracium is mined. It's kind of a next-level weird perfume ingredient as it combines the powers of the civet musk, castorium, and the natural uh, musk in one glorious fermented package. Frangantica gently describes the scent as animalistic and warm, but also says it's fecal and urinal, and none of those are fucking appealing to me. No thanks. Right? That's a lot of no. Um, It is... Like, I, I understand the theory behind scent glands being used, but no... Like, I, I don't, I, nope. I'm just going to go with nope. <laughs> and that is some of the most expensive and also somewhat frightening things that are possibly in your favorite perfume. Or not, because how many of us can afford the real expensive shit that costs an insane amount of money? Not many of us are buying much of it. No. for just over one and a half ounces is banana pants to me. I mean, I do kind of, I understand the idea of treating yourself to a luxury. And I mean, I think when we think of perfume, we're thinking of big bottles. Right. But if you're buying yourself a small amount of a luxury item, like that, I can see more I mean you wouldn't 
it's not going to be an everyday thing. Not for most of us, no. Right. I do want to find and huff me some of that Tom Ford, though. The oud wood, because it sounds like it smells divine. There's a um, custom perfume maker in uh, Brooklyn within walking distance of my old apartment that has all of the absurd ingredients. And if you walk in to create a fragrance, you can smell them. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go huff them all. See, that would make me happy. Like, walking through the perfume section at even department stores, super hit or miss. Because, like, can give me a migraine really quick. I cannot get in within, like, a one-block radiance of a fucking Bath and Body Works. I'm telling you, one... The girl's grandma, my ex-mother-in-law, yeah. loves to take them to the buy two, get two free or whatever sale. And I will never forget the first time she did that, they picked all different scents and then put them all on at once. And I thought Whoa. I was going to die. I had to explain that we only use one at a time. <laughs> Just, I remember oh. doing that in middle school. God. I didn't know Bath and Body Works still existed. Oh, it does. Actually, they're, uh, they just launched their uh their halloween collection mm-hmm. and i've never wanted anything bath and body works but they have what are they called like wallflowers or whatever they're plug-in air smelly good stuff they have one that is literally a white a pale white hand holding a red apple and it looks oh, they amazing had a good one they had a good, like, a thing that I wouldn't have expected from them that mm-hmm. was like a, almost like a snow globe or a music box or something last year that was, like, shockingly good and definitely, like, why? How did that slip through? <laughs> I guess it's, mm-hmm. Yeah, they have a, a soap dispenser, too, I think, like a soap pump that has the hand on it, but that hand holding that apple, I was like, oh, that looks amazing. But I would never be able to handle the stuff that goes in it because that's just, it's too, it's too synthetic. They did have a line at one point um, of naturals and they had like a jasmine vanilla lotion Mm. that was made with reasonably pure, it's supposed to be super pure essential oils, but not, not, it couldn't have been that pure of jasmine, but it, it smelled really good. Like that I could handle, but for the most part, a lot of their stuff just gives me instant instant headache. Well, I mean, that is an awful lot of uh, fake scent in one place. Yes. I Have you seen the movie Harold and Maude? Oh, yes, many times. It's one of my favorites. I love her little olfactory machine where she plugs in the different scents and you can smell like one of them. What is it? Like the winter on the street in new york or whatever like it's just so like you smell I know like what that smells like the certain yeah like you smell the certain things as they come um and i always thought that was amazing i wish there was like a a real machine like that i don't think that 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 probably is one but that's one of my favorite parts is when she pulls out her you know how she dabbles in oil factory and pulls out this machine and the tubes and everything yes oh i love harold and Maude. I think I can finally show it to my children without it weirding out. I think they're... Yeah, they're probably old enough now. Yeah, they've seen... Yeah, they've seen enough. I mean, force the oldest... They've seen enough. They've seen enough. They've seen enough spooky stuff. 
and weirdness to, uh, I tried explaining to them what it was and they were like, wait, he, but he fakes suicide. I'm like, oh, regularly. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. And they meet at a funeral. Yeah. And she's how old and he's how old. Yeah. Just, I'm like, and the soundtrack is Cat Stevens. It's amazing. They're like, Cat who? I'm like, shut up. Listen. Yeah. So I think, if I am not mistaken, that brings us to the (gasps) weekly worst way way to to die. die. (laughs) Which you got this week? Uh, this week mine is either one of my terrifying basements. Ooh, still haven't ventured down to them, have you? I've been in both. Really? Good for you. I don't know that I would have done that. Uh, well, it's the second basement that you think is over and then there's a little door. Nope. Open oh. and then the ceiling drops further. No. Mm-mm. Nope. And it's not. It's like dirt floor, right? Yeah. Yep. Both basements are dirt floor, um, and not connected. I will forever just picture the ending scene of Blair Witch. That's just what will always pop in my head in a basement like that. It's pretty accurate. The one that I can get to from inside the house has several questionable brick and wooden structures in it. Ooh. Um, I look forward to photos. I cannot actually open... I'm not tall enough to open the hatch to the one that's in the barn. (laughs) Oh, wow. We need to get, like, a drone. We need to get a drone flying there and look at all the things. I mean, Jeremy's just a little bit taller than me, and he can open it. Um, when I feel real bad because the poor, uh, we had to get um, uh, fiber internet. Oh, yeah. Because of um, you guys Jeremy's need work needs. Yeah. And, oh, the poor fiber internet guy had to go into the second room of the second no. basement. No. Uh-uh. And he also had to open the um, the hatch that leads into it, and I offered him a beer afterwards. I was going to say, I would have offered him alcohol and a container of salt to bring with. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, yep. Yeah, those are, yep. that's, yeah. Neither basement would be fun to die in. Uh, no, he just rolled his eyes at me and he's like, I've seen worse. <laughs> Good on it. like, all right, you are a fiber internet installer in historic New England. That is fair. You have right. probably just found bones. Oh, yeah. So yeah. mine is accidentally drowning while trying to harvest sp- sperm whale vomit poo. Nope. Because everything about that would be just not fun. I'm trying to decide. It would probably be faster than being locked in either one of my basements. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, yeah. Oh. Nope. 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 So on that note, <laughs> uh-huh. 
Do you want to be spooky internet friends? Obviously. Want to go swimming and hang out in basements? <laughs> we are Bones and Bobbins on all of the social medias, or you can just find us at bonesandbobbins.com. It's true. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast because it pleases the internet gremlins, which can be fed after midnight. <laughs> and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls! Bring them here. Yes. Now, I have plenty of room to store them. <laughs> A couple of basements worth. <laughs> yeah, just bring them on over. <sighs> so on that note... Let us leave you with some advice that you Uh should never forget. Never, never. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. (laughs) That was a good one. (laughs) I was channeling the uh, ghost on the third floor. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.